Well, over the last week with the invasion of Ukraine, there have been a lot of hard and tragic stories. There are loved ones who have died and there are people fighting for their own life and for their families. There are people fearful, there are people in danger and people who are helpless. And yet amid all the tragic stories, there have also been some inspiring stories. One of those stories is about a Pittsburgh man. Alan Sherwood is a businessman in Pittsburgh who is part of Holy Trinity Ukrainian Catholic Church. Long name. But their church has had a heart for Ukrainian refugees and orphans over the last few years. And so this past week, after he and some of the other families saw the bombings outside of this orphanage in Ukraine, the same orphanage that they were trying to adopt families from, they reached out to Richard and asked him to do something. And so Richard and his priest, they flew to Warsaw, Poland, and from there they drove to the Ukrainian border. So far, these two men have rescued 36 children and six adults, 22 of those kids from this orphanage. Alan told the reporters that last Christmas, this is what started this, last Christmas, a Ukrainian girl named Karina visited them from the orphanage. Sherwood said this, she was sitting on my lap and we were just talking about Christmas and things. And I said to her, no matter where you are in this world, if anything ever went wrong, I would help you out. I would always be there. That's how all this started. I like this story for several reasons, but part of it is I think it's a beautiful picture of God's power and love. How he says to us, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, I will be there for you. And though we might not face the same terrible situation that's going on in Ukraine today, we do walk through our own dark valleys some of which are quite dark, quite painful. And yet what God says to us is that he promised that he will carry us through, that he will rescue us. We have countless situations we get into where things are out of our control or where we can't imagine how we could get out of this trap or where, where we cannot slay the giant in front of us. And in all of this, God promises to do something that we cannot do, to rescue us. And so what we see today in Psalm 107 is the same story of the Bible and the same story of the life of Jesus, the gospel. It's that we are desperate for rescue, and God is our rescuer. So this morning, as we walk through Psalm 107, there's a pretty clear structure that we will be following. This morning in Psalm 107, there are four mini-stories, or four groups. We read the first one in verses 3 or 4 to 9. Now, within each of these groups, you see a common pattern. It starts with the beginning of the description they're in, the trial they're walking through, and then you have this phrase, which is repeated in all four stories. It says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then in each story, you get a description of what that deliverance looked like, and then you have another refrain that shows up in all four stories. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And so in those two verses, in these two refrains, we see two basic postures of the life of God's people, dependent prayer and thanksgiving. In all four of these scenarios, escape seemed impossible. They were in danger, desperate, and dependent for help. And yet when they finally cry out to God, he shows up and he hears them, he helps them, and he rescues them. And part of why there's thanksgiving in this passage is it's through their rescue that they see that God's love is steadfast and he is faithful. So part of why I wanted to speak on Psalm 107 this morning is I think we need this reminder in trials 
that God's love is still set upon you, that he is still faithful, that he hears you, and he promises to help. This morning, we'll see the main point that God is our rescuer. He is the one who hears and helps his people. I want us to walk through all four stories and just see again who God is, what he can do for us, and why we should be a prayerful, thankful people. So we'll start with the first group. The first group are the wanderers in the wilderness. I'm going to read, start with verses 4 and 5. It says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. We'll stop there. So this first group is described as those who have gotten lost in the desert, far from safety and far from the provision of the city. Now, when we read this in the Bible, again, this was not a 15-minute stretch of the highway where there is no Chick-fil-A. This is a Middle Eastern desert. You're days from seeing anyone or anything. And so these people are described as wanderers. They're aimless. They're alone. They're lost. Their resources are gone, and they're wondering if they will ever be found. This reminds me of a story several years ago. My wife, Melissa, and I, we got lost on a hike. Now, I'd like to say this was a daunting hike, like in Maine or Washington or Colorado, but unfortunately, it was Indiana. (laughs) And it was at Clifty Falls State Park in Madison. I know, it's embarrassing. I feel like I should return my North Face jackets just for this story. (laughs) Well, after a couple of hours walking around in downtown Madison, which is cute, it's nice, we went to the park. And this was supposed to be a one-hour hike. But somehow, in that tiny little park, we got lost, and that one-hour hike turned into a seven-hour hike. I know. I didn't even know you could hike that long in Indiana. (laughs) Thankfully, again, we're in Indiana. We're not worried about grizzly bears or mountain lions. But after seven hours, it was starting to get dark. And so we started to get worried. Are we going to get out of here? Am I going to have to sleep in the river? What's going on? So after seven hours gets dark. We're actually starting to feel, feel at this point some fear, some panic. We didn't have cell phones. Will we get out? We didn't bring any food, and I only had one bottle of water. So I was about to go all bear grills, eat whatever bugs and berries I could find. It's a pretty desperate situation for me as a hiker. Now, this first group in Psalm 107, it's kind of like that, but obviously a lot worse, like 100 times worse. But they're in this situation where they are lost in the middle of a desert. They have no hope of finding water, food, resources, or that anyone will come to get them. And so they're just dreaming about shelter, about relief, about rest, and about refreshment. They're lost and they're tempted to just give up. Now with each of these four mini stories we talk about, we'll see that there's a general description, but they're meant to apply to the bigger struggles and trials that all of us walk through. And so I think there are at least four people that could identify with this story, and maybe you're going through this today. The story is for the lost and confused who don't know how they got where they are or where to go next. It's for the ones who feel trapped in a situation and don't know how they will get out. It's for for those who feel downcast in a desert. So whether you're going through a spiritual dry season and you long for refreshment, or whether just the suns, the trials of life are pounding on you and you feel like you're in a desert. Or it speaks to those who are weary, to the worn out ones who are tempted to give up and just lay down in the desert and die. That's who this speaks to today. 
Well, verse 6 tells us that they get to this place of desperation, and their desperation leads to verse 6, this common refrain, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble for deliverance from their distress. We see this line in all four stories, and it's a reminder that we often don't cry out to God until we get in this desperate situation. It might take hitting a wall or hitting rock bottom before we give up on ourselves, we give up on our own resources, and we cry out to God. It doesn't mean prayer is a magic wand. God chooses sometimes not to answer our prayers or not to answer it the way we thought or in our timing. And that can be hard because as God's children, we just wonder, why doesn't God give us this good thing we're asking for? In those moments, we are his children and we have to learn to trust him, to trust his care for us, his love, and his goodness. And yet what we do see is that God invites us to pray to him. He invites us to pray to him because prayer is partly how we know God and our heart is knit to his. But also he says, God does respond to prayer. That only when we pray does he respond through rescuing and redeeming. And so in our section, they cry out to the Lord. And then in verses 7 and 9, it tells us that God comes to them. And God leads them out of this wilderness and onto a straight path back to the city. And so he leads them to a place of refreshment and shelter and provision. Though they felt completely alone and lost in the wilderness, even there they were never out of God's sight. And when we feel lost and alone, God never sends out a search party to do his work. He knows exactly where you are, and he will come and get you. Right now, you might feel like God must not see you. God doesn't know what you're going through. You might feel like you're so far from the path that God cannot reach you. And yet what we see in this text is that God's eyes are always upon you. There's no place you will be, no place you will go where God cannot rescue you. It says when they cry to him that God, he comes to their aid and he delivers them. That he turns their wilderness season into an oasis. That he refreshes their soul. Verse 9 zooms out and it tells us that God satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he, he fills with good things. I hope even this morning there's someone that hears that. That God's desire is to fill your life with good things. He's good to you. Verse 8 calls on God's people. So what's the response? We cry to the Lord for help. He delivers us. How do we respond? Verse 8 tells us that they, call on, that they give thanks to God. Not just for what God has done, though that's huge, but for how it shows us who God is. Through God's redemptive rescue, they learn that he is faithful, that he's eager to hear their prayers, and that he wants to deliver them, that he fills their life with good things, that he refreshes the wandering soul, and through all of this, they thank him and they worship him. We see this theme of thanksgiving. It shows up in all four stories. And in the verses we read, it was in verses one to three. So this is a psalm of thanksgiving. We cry out to the Lord in prayer. And when God answers, when he rescues, we give thanks. Well, the second group we see are those who are prisoners in darkness. This is verses 10 to 16. Follow along as I read verses 10 to 12. It says, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. We'll pause there. So this next group, we move from those aimless wandering in the wilderness to those who are locked up in a prison. 
And usually in the Bible, when it talks about imprisonment, it's either the sense of bondage due to sin or prison from despair and in discouragement. And so again, I think this text, this group, speaks to at least four people. This text speaks to those who feel stuck in sin, addiction, or habits that you can't break. It speaks to those who still carry the shackles of shame that you just can't seem to get rid of. Or if you're here and you feel like you're experiencing a dark night of the soul, you struggle to see or to believe that God is good, the story is for you. And it speaks to those losing hope that things will ever change. Part of this imagery of prison is you're stuck there forever and you ask, will things ever improve? So the text describes their prison cell as a place of darkness, gloom, and sorrow. And while the focus of this specific group in Psalm 107 is their sin that's led to suffering, we can apply this to suffering in general. If you've ever walked through suffering through trials, you know how fitting that language of imprisonment is. Charles Spurgeon, he often used the language of prison to talk about his own struggle with depression. Charles Spurgeon said this, The iron bolt mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison. And you can add alongside depression and despair things like anxiety, fear, discouragement, or a sense of failure. We understand that the darkness of guilt can shut out the rays of God's love. Or that discouragement in a trial can leave us feeling like we're in a pit and there's no way we can ever climb out of it. Or it can feel like a sin pattern is just so deeply engraved into our heart that we can never get free. We long for freedom, but we know we cannot secure it on our own. And it's this desperation again that leads the people to cry out to God for help and for rescue and for deliverance. And again, what we see is that God is good that he hears their cries, and he comes to them, and he rescues them. Well, as a kid in the 90s, this is what I think of when I read this passage. As a kid in the 90s, I remember watching wrestling when Hulk Hogan was a big deal. Oh, yeah, there he is. There's the man. Now, his patented move, if you don't know, was he would often rip his shirt from top to bottom. I don't know what's appropriate to show, so I just got this image. It's clean cut. But what he did when he would rip his shirt, he would show his strength and his power. And then all of his fans, like me, the Hulkamaniacs, would think, man, that guy is awesome. He's so strong. I was a kid sitting in my house. I would try to do it the same with my shirts and realize they don't rip the same way, and I'm no Hulk. (laughs) But part of what I remember with Hulk Hogan, and I know now it's probably staged, but what would happen is there would be these, probably, yeah, there'd be this, (laughs) this wrestling match in the ring. Not him, but maybe a friend or a foe he doesn't like. This match is going on, his friend's getting beat up, and then what happens is Hulk Hogan, he comes running out of the back, usually music turns down, he runs out of the back, he jumps into the ring, he comes to his friend's aid, or he knocks down his foe, he does a body slam or his leg drop, those were his two things, and then he stands over them in victory. And when I read Psalm 107, I get a similar picture of how God comes to our rescue. Not this picture but a picture of how God acts on our behalf and strengths. When I think about life, I think often it feels like we're in a ring. It feels like we're just getting pummeled. It feels like life has us on the mat and we're about to hear the three count and the pin. And yet what we see God does here in Psalm 107 and what you know to be true in your life is that in that moment when you're about to get the three count, 
That's when God comes running in from the back. He jumps into the ring. He defeats your opponent, and he shows his power when he flexes his muscles. Listen to verses 14 and 16, how they talk about this deliverance of God. It says, he brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. For he shatters the doors of bronze, and he cuts into the bars of iron. And so it's telling you, he doesn't just unlock the prison doors, he actually kicks them down and shatters them. He doesn't just remove our chains, but he snaps them in two. It's giving us a picture of God's full power and deliverance. He not only frees us from these things, but he removes them so they can't be used against us again. Now, if you've ever suffered under that thick fog of whether it's despair or guilt for your sin, then you love this God who comes to your rescue and sets you free. It's those who know this kind of grace that are the most thankful. My favorite hymn, And Can It Be, has these famous lines. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is the one who redeems us from our sinfulness at the cross. That Jesus is the one who frees us from those chains of addiction, temptation, and sin. And you might be here this morning, and you know that you cannot get free on your own, but the promise here is that God can set you free. That God has the power to free you from those chains you can't get out of yourself. So whether that be a sin and you're a believer here and you said, I've been set free from sin, the penalty of sin, but I still feel like it's a power over my life. Even if it's your own foolishness that's got you into this prison, God promises to set you free. Or if you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Jesus, and yet you sense that there is sin in your life. There's something keeping you from God. Or that God is here, he's pursuing you, he wants to set you free from that thing in your life you can't handle. The encouragement is to stop trying to fix it yourself, but to turn to God, to cry out to Jesus, and let him be the one who sets you free. That he paid your debt at the cross so that nothing could hold you down. So that you could be freed, forgiven, and loved forever. So we see that God comes to rescue the wanderers in the wilderness, He comes to the prisoners, and then third, he comes to the sick and the suffering. Verses 17 to 22. You can follow along, I'll be in verse 17. It says, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities they suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word, and he healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. We'll stop there. So the third group here is suffering because of the way they chose to ignore God's ways. They're described as foolish. And in the Bible, foolishness isn't so much intellect, but will. Proverbs says, a foolish person is someone who rejects God's wisdom and does what is right in their own eyes. They're foolish because they think they know more than God. They're foolish because they follow vain mute idols rather than the living God. And as much as we don't like to admit it, we experience the problems of our own foolishness in our own life. You know, I'm foolish when I think that the the leftovers in my car overnight are cold enough that they're good the next day. Tried that before. 
Not a good decision. That was foolish. But I'm also foolish when I think that my ways will work out better than God's. I'm foolish when I return to this same temptation I said I never want to get near again. I'm foolish when I listen to Satan's lies, an enemy who hates me, rather than listening to the truth of my Father who loves me. And I'm foolish when I don't heed God's warnings, when I, but I press on ahead. Foolish when God puts up a yellow light or a red light, and I choose just to speed on through. Well, in Psalm 107, it's their foolishness that got them into trouble, so far into trouble that it says that they're sick, they're starving, they're at the point of death. They're emptied of all their resources and strength. But God is again merciful and kind. It says when they cry out to him for deliverance, he answers. It says he sends out his word and he heals them despite their stubbornness and their foolishness. And so in this passage, the sin sick suffers. They give thanks to God, not just for their deliverance, but because they learn of his mercy and his kindness to them in their foolishness. That despite who they are, despite how they got themselves there, God is still kind, faithful, and loving. We now come to our fourth and our final group in verses 23 to 32. These are the storm-tossed sailors. I'm going to read verses 23 to 30. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So in our final group, we have these storm-tossed sailors. They were overwhelmed by the winds, the rain, and the waves. If you've ever watched any of the shows like Deadliest Catch or Perfect Storm, you probably have a picture of what's going on here. They're described as people staggering on a boat like drunken men, just looking for something to grab to find stability. We get this picture that despite all their skills and their experiences, it amounts to nothing because they're like a toy boat bobbing up and down in the water. Now, I know this image, it might seem foreign to us because as Midwesterners, we mainly are on calm lakes or the occasional dolphin cruise. So what I think helps me to think about this is a plane ride. Now, if you've ever been on a turbulent plane ride, you know that experience, maybe, where you've gone through a storm. And as you go through the storm, you feel the plane drop and drop again. Now in your mind, you start to think, okay, I realize what's going on. I'm in a tiny little plane in the midst of this lightning storm, and you start to feel scared and worried about what's going on. If you're like me, what I do is I, I clench the chair, I just hold on, hoping we make it. Maybe you start singing, Jesus, take the wheel in your head, and you hope it applies to flights. It does. But whatever it is, you're scared, and you start wondering, are we going to make it? You panic, you're fearful, your courage goes away. Now, once you finally land, you do a few skids, but you're safe on the ground, and you relax. You're calm. You made it safely. Well, that's a picture of what's going on with this group, but they're tossed in a storm, their lives are threatened, and they're fearful. We might again pause to ask, well, who can see themselves in this story? Who apply, or where does this situation apply? Think of at least three groups. First, anyone who feels small, who, feel, who realizes how weak 
helpless and wounded we are. Second, anyone who feels like the waves of life have left you weary, like you have been left worried, doubting, or on the brink of giving up. Or anyone who feels like they've been beaten up, battered, and bruised by the storms of life. And while there is no promise that all storms in life will stop, or that they'll stop when we want them to, in this case, God does deliver them. In verse 25, it says that the God who stirs up the storm then stills it in verse 29. He quiets the weather, but he also quiets their hearts. He brings them safely to their destination in verse 30. So again, what they experience is not just rescue and deliverance, but they get this firsthand knowledge that God is sovereign over the weather and their circumstances, that God has good purposes for them, that he is committed to carry them through whatever they're facing, and he will bring them safely to shore. Go back to Spurgeon. He said this, God can in an instant change the condition of a man's mind so that it shall seem an absolute miracle to him that he has passed so suddenly from hurricane to calm. Oh, that the Lord would thus work in the listener, in your heart today. Should his heart be storm-beaten with outward troubles or inward fears, Lord, say the word and peace will come at once. We know this, but rescue in the moment, it always feels far off. If you're in a storm, it feels like you're caught in that storm and you don't see help coming at all. And yet we see is that in an instant or with just a word, God can stop it, still it, and rescue you. So Psalm 107, it's given us this clear picture of God's unstoppable might, but also his unwavering mercy toward his people. God doesn't just give a little bit of first aid. He doesn't just point you in the right direction. He doesn't just give you a boost so that you can save yourself. God is the rescuer. God is the redeemer in this picture. He comes to us because we can't make our way to him. God comes to free us. He doesn't come to deliver us, though, until we stop trying to fix it, climb our way out, or find a solution on our own. It's when we see how desperate we are, we cry to the Lord, and that's when he comes to rescue us. And he does it because of his grace and his goodness. So as we close, I want to, come, I want to share three applications. There are a lot of ways you could apply this text, but I just want to point out three things. It should be easy to remember. God rescues us, God loves us, and God hears us. The first is that God rescues us. Now, in the, in the four groups of sinners and sufferers that we looked at, the New Testament shows us how what we long and need is in Jesus. So I like how Psalm 107 actually points us to Jesus as our rescuer, redeemer, and restorer. That each of those four stories and the scenarios they talked about, we actually see images of Christ in the New Testament, while he pro how he provides the provision and the answer. Think about these four scenarios, and again, think about how you might be walking through this, and how Jesus is the ultimate answer. For the first story, we have the wanderers wasting away in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd, that Jesus guides us to safety, shelter, and refreshment. We see that Jesus is the bread of life and the living water, and that he satisfies our thirsty soul. We see that Jesus is the way, that he's the one who ends our exile, he brings us through the wilderness, and he will bring us to rest and refreshment, to home. For the second group, those imprisoned, we're told that Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness, bringing hope to the hopeless. That Jesus is the redeemer who can alone deliver us from our bondage. 
that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin, to pay the debt we could never pay so that we could be forgiven, saved, and set free. Jesus is also the warrior, that Jesus defeats our enemy. He breaks our chains. He releases us from prison, and he brings us into his glorious kingdom. Or think about the third group, the sin-sick sufferers. Jesus is the great physician, that Jesus heals and makes whole. Jesus is the living word we feed on for life, strength, and sustenance. And Jesus is the resurrection, that he brings life out of death. He causes dry bones to live again. And there's no part of your life that he can't resurrect, restore, or heal. And in the final group, we saw those who were tossed and frightened in a storm. And we have a very clear picture about Jesus with his disciples on the boat. And we see that Jesus is our friend in the boat with us. And how with just a word, he can calm the raging storm. Think of that. Jesus told the storm to stop and it obeyed him. And so what we see is we need not fear if Jesus is near, that Jesus will carry us safely to shore. And so in all of that, when we apply the work and the person of Jesus to Psalm 107, we see that if Jesus is your redeemer, there is no situation you can be in beyond rescue and help. And so whatever it is that you're facing today, this week, you can cry out to Jesus, cry out to your all-sufficient Savior. There's nothing in your life he can't restore. There's nothing in your life he can't resurrect, redeem, and heal. He longs to rescue you. Second thing we see is that God loves us. This psalm closes in verse 33 with this verse. It says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And throughout this chapter, chapter we've seen example after example of God's steadfast, unrelenting love. And so this morning, whether your battle is mental, physical, spiritual, or relational, whether you're battling alone or with someone else, whether you're hidden or seen, whether it's caused by yourself or it's suffering due, suffering due to another person, whatever your situation, wherever you find yourself, however long you've been there, the point in Psalm 107 is that God is the kind of God that can meet you there and deliver you, that there are no walls too high, no pit too deep, no sin so dirty, no foe too strong that can keep him from rescuing and redeeming you. God's love is steadfast. It is endless, patient, and unwavering. It searches us out and it finds us. He searches for his straying sheep and he doesn't stop till he brings us home. That's God's steadfast, enduring love on display in Psalm 107. And so the encouragement this morning is to see that love, to believe in that love, and then to run to and rest in that love. Because when we see God's love, when we know it, when we believe it, that will encourage you to trust him and to turn to him. You won't cry out to God if you don't believe he cares about you and he doesn't love you. So be convinced and see God's goodness and his love that is set upon you. And the last thing we see is that God hears us. I want to remind us that one of the main things we've seen throughout this psalm, it's this encouragement toward desperate prayers. All four stories have this same verse. It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. God often lets us wander into the wilderness so that there we cry out to him and see that it is God who has rescued us. Part of what we see in this text is what we know to be true in our own life. 
It takes us hitting that wall I mentioned or hitting rock, rock bottom before we come to an end of ourselves and before we seek God's deliverance. One of the blessings in trials is how it pushes us to God. Our pain becomes the source of our praying. Spurgeon again said this about this passage, people do not begin to pray to God as long as they have any earthly hope. But when all hope is gone, then comes the first real, living, agonizing cry to heaven. And no sooner is that heard than God answers it. What we see is the cry of the needy stirs the compassion of the mighty. And I know every one of, the, every one of us in this room, we have some significant need in our life, some pain, some area where you can fit into this psalm, whether you're in the wilderness, trapped or imprisoned, laid low with suffering, or tossed in a storm. And I don't know why God allowed you to be there, but one of the purposes is clear, that God wants you to turn to him and to pray to him. So this morning, my question is, what is it that you're praying for? What do you need to start praying for? What do you need to keep praying for and not give up on? What is that area in your life that you're past the point of self-sufficiency? You're past any earthly hope, and you know for sure that you need God's rescue, God's help, God's answer, or God's provision. What is your SOS prayer that you need to bring to God this morning? He's listening. He hears. And because he loves you, and because there's nothing too big for him, he is eager to help you. And the prayer for us is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.